Okay, before you get any further, this is part two. Uh, You could start here, uh, but if you haven't yet listened to part one, I recommend that you go back uh, to part one of this conversation uh, where I am first introduced to my guest on this episode, Elise. Uh, we had not met before recording the first part of this conversation, um, and we recorded it all in one go, but I split it up, uh, so that hopefully y'all can have a little bit easier time fitting it into the time when you have to listen to things. Um, so this is the show that I do as regularly as I can, uh, called Imagination Revolution, UBI, uh, where I am joined by people who want to share with me their ideas of what they think their life would be like uh, if we didn't have to work to cover our basics. Um, And so this conversation uh, with Elise is actually, you know, like I said, we didn't even know each other before that. And I am always excited to to get to know people uh, around this sort of deep questions of like, what really drives you what really moves you what inspires you what are the big things um you know like let's just get right to it and this conversation really just got right to it um and so i yeah if you are someone who has some big ideas um about you know what's happening in the world as well as like you know the world that you'd like to see happen uh get in touch my email is k-o-r-i-d-o-t-y at gmail.com. You can also find my website, corydoty.com. You can also find me on Patreon. Same same name all over. Um, and you'll find, you'll find me doing more of this. So if you like what you hear, uh, like, subscribe, tell your friends, all the things. Um, here we go, part two from like the income system it comes from just like generating money off of having money 100 100 and it's so interesting for me because um my partner works in like a an industry where the product that he provides um is consumed by the ultra wealthy mm-hmm. and it has so changed my perspective i'm like I, I now consider, like, a doctor or a lawyer a working-class comrade. I'm like, yeah, you have a Lexus? Good for you. That's awesome. Like, some people have jets. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about multiple, them. Multiple, multiple jets. <laughs> Together. Yeah. You and me, doctor. Because, you you know, yeah, you probably have a Lexus. You're probably paying that every month. And you also probably have student debt. So, like, you're my comrade. If you choose to align yourself with me, we are comrades. But if you choose to align yourself with rich people, like, you're a bootlicker. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. Well, and I think that a part of the um, a part of that mythology about people wanting to like look down and like step on whoever has less power is that so many people who are working class comrades, whether that be like you know people who are picking up bottles or the doctor in Alexis, like imagine themselves as this like disenfranchised billionaire. And they're like, uh-huh. you know, like, yeah, what was this? There's some meme that's like temporarily embarrassed millionaire. Yeah. It's like you're not <laughs> you're not a temporary embarrassment like millionaire. You are a, you're a plebe like you're you're being extracted yep. from in the same way as, you know, everything else that we're calling into question here. Like, 
obviously listening to like a medieval history is a you know a, a slightly larger um like timeline perspective but that like ultimately for those of us who you know we we only have the perspective that we have and you know like most of the information that we've been given has come through this filter of like this uh-huh. is the best thing and this is the progress and this is what this is what a civilization looks like and that like you know sometimes having a conversation with someone who's even just like 20 years older um and being like oh right yeah of course of course we organized in community before the internet of course uh-huh. we did right uh-huh. you know um and those those skills are so important because you know more and more we're seeing the the internet the the tools of the internet being extracted from people and and taken over by business and you know to where it's i'm like hmm are these tools are are they connected or am i hanging out at the mall (laughs) um you know and like yeah to, to to remember that we did things before and we can do them again as needed. And like, how else are we going to organize illegal things, Corey? <laughs> you can't organize illegal things all over the internet. <laughs> it is a uh, it is a very dangerous game. We'll say that much. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, like, you know, things like taking into consideration, like, okay, if you if you did want to organize things that are potentially illegal, like there are mechanisms like you know our phones they're like they have audio pickup all the time like if we actually want to be careful and you know there's i feel like there's various levels of careful and like you know obviously one of them is like making sure that the surveillance systems that we know about like are kept in check through some manner of like privacy legislations and you know things Mm -hmm. and then like also you know each of us on our own and individually like uh having some mindfulness about it which like you know i i don't know i kind of exist with a i've i've normalized that my life is post-privacy um Mm -hmm. (laughs) in some ways because Mm -hmm. it's like yeah I you know there is a level of surveillance that is happening and feels like very difficult to resist or refuse and so you know I just hope that um that should the day come that whoever it is like catches on to what I'm up to that like they take me in the streets and that people are fucking filming it you know like (laughs) yeah 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 you're like I hope that the post privacy factor is also there yeah <laughs> when i'm getting taken down <laughs> yeah exactly if i'm yeah. gonna t- if i'm gonna be taken <clears throat> down may my martyrdom be very clear to everyone you know about what what it was that i went down for you know i think that you're here um and you know so yeah um, i mean the other thing is for like for for disabled people like we don't again and especially like in an ongoing pandemic we we you know, I'm not about like leaving the internet, right? But like, <laughs> I would be extremely isolated in that case. But, but um, 
you know, it's amazing to hear from elders about, you know, the organizing that happened before. And also, I think it's a very good reminder. Um, and I will say just in, you know, experiences that I've had on kind of both ends, I think it's an important probably reminder if we think about, you know, the activists who came before us, how hard people fought and also um, how varied their tactics were and how people have people did not expect to just ask the government for something and have the government deliver it um you know like not to bring up petitions again but like we just keep going around like still do this petition and then you know we're not coalescing around issues with um diverse tactics in the way that i think we would have to to actually enact change um and you know i think there's a lot of factors in that um and i think some of them are coming from you know the rise of the internet and and the way that how easy it is to organize that those types in those types of ways um but another thing that i wanted to talk to you about is the way that what i see going on with our governance systems which is another way that i think ubi could be extremely revolutionary because i think that it would actually um reveal what has gone wrong with the way that we're currently governing ourselves um because you know if we if we ever manage to have a universal not means tested safety net i think we would start to see how um flawed so many of the the programs that we have are and you know it it, my read on the situation and having worked in government sort of at that level um previous as well is like our governance system has been totally infiltrated by mbas and business mindset and you know running you can't run a service provider like a business it's it's just it's not that's not what it is but that's Mm -hmm. what we've been doing Mm -hmm. um and then at the same time we've in my opinion and as a as a labor activist and you know union activist as well like i say this with with love but we have you know since the the starting in the 80s into the 90s like the union movement has been so weak and in government and in big corporations what i have seen happening is you know in a unionized a big unionized workplace it's so hard to fight for raises so you you go to bargain and like i've i've been involved in in bargaining collective agreements and you're like we're just asking you to keep up with inflation we're not even asking for a raise and even that is like you know oh my god i can't believe it like these public servants wanting a four percent raise and you're like yeah man like inflation's seven percent like what do you like this is we're not asking for the moon um but what i've seen happen which i consider to have happened as like a subconscious workaround is so many people getting these these sort of minor promotions so the ladder is no longer like 
you know, service provider on the ground, like kind of labor level worker, clerk, whatever, to like, you know, middle management to upper management. You've got like layers and layers and layers of middle management because what I see happening, what I've seen happening on and even in my bargaining unit is like people getting these micro promotions because the collective agreement doesn't allow for the types of raises that people need to stay in those jobs. And so then our government is like unable to provide actual services to citizens. Like why is it that it's going to take six months for you to get a passport? Because there aren't those clerks on the level to be like doing the, Oh, I'm just doing data entry. That's what I do. Like, but there's so many middle managers who are like, I came up with a strategic plan. And like, this is not at all to slag on anybody or their job, but like, I know enough public servants and I've been around to be like, yeah, a lot of y'all are making plans and making proposals and knowing full well that maybe 10% of them ever go anywhere. Mm. And that's what you do all day. But yet, you know, I have provided support to community members who like cannot talk to somebody at Service Canada or like cannot, you know, you're like an older person, you don't use the internet and you're like, my taxes are messed up. And you're like, cannot talk to the CRA because there's nobody answering the phone because we don't have people at that level. And so, um, you know, our government is like fundamentally incapable of like rising to the moment and I think that if we provided a UBI and like a universal um non-means tested just like come get it kind of benefit that it would shed a light on how uh cumbersome our government systems have become yeah Uh, in a very transformative way like on top of what it would provide to everyone receiving it right just to be like oh this is and again to be like it's the public servants are not the enemy the fact that public servants want raises is that it's not like you know and like so many public servants are doing such amazing work for people but the system is really not very functional right now no and i think that you know the what you say about sort of moving people into these like really pointless middle management is it's very interesting to me i don't know if you um follow this person on the internet named kimberly douglas yes yeah okay um i was in a live that she was doing a few weeks ago and she was talking about like the difference between um between management and leadership and mm-hmm. like really getting into how you know like management is that's how business operates and you know the way that you just mm-hmm. explained in terms of like oh we we can't give people raises in the jobs that actually do things so we're going to move them into these other jobs where we're allowed to pay them different amounts but they don't actually do the things anymore and then now we don't have anyone to do the things like management is this sort of like cog turning without um the the other thing that it makes me think of is um you know the book the grapes of wrath yeah okay so like the fifth chapter of that book where um the guy driving the tractor like comes to mow down the house and the Mm -hmm 
father standing in the dooryard is like, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm going to shoot you out of that tractor. You're not going to mow down my house. And the guy driving the tractor is like, you know the company's just going to send someone else tomorrow. Like, I'm here because mm-hmm. I need a job too. And, like, the company will keep sending someone else to drive the tractor until your house is mowed down. And the guy's like, but I'll go to the top. And he's like, it, this monster doesn't have a top. It doesn't have – there's not, like, mm-hmm. a person that you can – that you can kill that will stop this from happening um and and yeah so much of how the like business governance like the the people that we are expecting or the structures that we are expecting may like hold things up or support us um they're running in this model of like we don't care who's in the way we don't care what's like we're just going to like follow the plan because that's what Mm -hmm. generates the right numbers at the bottom of the sheet and we don't really care um well and the plan the plan itself at this point is always going to be reactive um that that's all that we're seeing and then it's like okay so we come up with this reactive plan and then we have all these people at every level being like i'm just doing my job um and no one who's like this is my grand plan um and I would posit that this even goes as far as our elected officials in in most modern, I will say this with air quotes, democracies. Like, we don't have leaders. We have managers. We have campaigns that are PR machines that are reactive, that are based on polling. Oh, the polling is telling us that people want us to talk about climate change. So what's our climate change plank in our platform? Not like holy fucking shit, the IPC just told us that we're going to be facing famine within five years. What's my plan to deal with that? Like, how yeah. how can I, as a leader, consult with people, use ex- the expertise of the people, and guide things in a way? So so it's it's, there is no plan, there is no leadership, it's just reactivity, and then it's like, framed with, it's reactivity, but framed within like a strategic planning yeah. uh kind of it's language what's, it's what's reasonable or what's what's electable or, and this is this is a conversation exactly. that i have which had. again is reactive yeah and it and it's like and that's something where for me that's where i have like fully committed to anarchy because i'm like it actually doesn't matter like the government the type of government structure that we have right now is completely irrelevant because it's reactive so if we want to affect change, we have to affect change as a community with our community members. We have to change the hearts and minds of our community members and show them and with each other work together and show we have to show leadership because that's what's lacking. And when we show leadership, our like quote unquote democracy and quote unquote democratically elected leaders who actually have the like funding levers will react to us. Yeah. But we, we can't, you know, until we fundamentally provide that change and that leadership, there, there won't be a reaction, right? And, and I would say, like, in, in Canada right now, the convoy people are fucking running the show because they showed in, within their horrible fascist mindset that they've shown leadership. And part of that was being like, yeah, I don't care that this isn't a lot of this isn't real. I don't care that this isn't possible. 
I'm just going to get out here and have political imagination, horrifyingly. And then, oh, lo and behold, the government reacts, right? Like our governments across, like, you know, provincial and federal, et cetera, have reacted. Like the fact that it's now, you know, I feel stigmatized as a person who was disabled by COVID for wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. And rhetoric is coming from public health that that's not useful, that that's not preventing um, illness. And, you know, like some of the rhetoric, like, I don't know if you remember at a certain point, there was like those posters that were like, everyone's moving forward at their own speed. And there was like a moose and a turtle and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not moving forward. I'm fucking disabled. Yeah. And I'm always going to avoid getting sick as much as possible because my immune system and my, um, like, atomic nervous system is fucked up probably for life. So, like, like, but I feel like I've gotten that kind of pathologized view as if I'm the little turtle. Like, oh, too bad for you. You still don't do this. Like, I'm going to invite your kid to this birthday party that's, like, wildly not considering disease transmission and like oh yeah sorry for you guys like mm. um but i see all of that as being extremely connected to the convoy and like they they were not trying to ask for what's reasonable or ask for what's possible they were like yeah we're in charge we're the leaders here and like where is that from the left where where is that from the left we're not we're not we are we're like if we just ask for them to like maybe decriminalize drugs in like this one little way and that they're telling us is like kind of reasonable you know like this is, this is i want to see more gene swanson's just like giving people drugs that they checked you yeah. know like um and and it's not to say that like it's not it that that is certainly happening and has been happening and like i know that also today is like a big day for that but like in general we're just so constrained by what's a reasonable thing to ask for and like this campaign mentality which which you know comes back to what can we achieve based on things right now and it's reactive and you know instead of being like no we are imagining that things are different um you know like and some an idea that I have is like any government that was serious about climate change would just start giving people electric cargo bikes. Like you want one, come get one, you know, mm-hmm. get on the waiting list. might take a couple months, but like free cargo bike because we fund electric vehicles sometimes like collectively between different jurisdictions to the amount of like a high end electric cargo bike. Yeah. You well, know, like at certain points you've been able to get like 10 to $15,000 of rebates for your electric vehicle and that could be a fucking tesla high-end vanity vehicle right and and i'm like instead why don't you just say anyone who wants an electric cargo bike which has less of an emission profile than a regular bike because if you were to ride a regular bike with that much cargo you would have to eat quite a bit more (laughs) so literally an electric cargo bike has produces less emissions than an acoustic cargo bike so you know but so i'm like what i have these dreams of, of just being like yeah the government is giving everyone a free cargo bike like that's 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 what's happening but how do we how do we embody that 
in the way that the convoy people do where they like don't care that no one's saying that that's reasonable <laughs> right well and i mean i think because that... when they started their whole thing no one thought that it was reasonable to be like all covid mitigations should go away <sighs> um and then somehow that's what happened <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think that the example of like giving out safe drugs is like that okay there's a there's a case where like we have in yeah in small ways you know we have seen largely communities of drug users like self-organizing and saying like you know decriminalization sure fine but also like that doesn't mean anything without safe supply Mm -hmm. and so like we're gonna show you how easy it is and you know you can come down to Maine and Hastings and get your free cocaine that is tested yeah. <laughs> you know or and... even the folks testing here in town right like that's I mean essentially I mean I know today things shifted but like essentially they've been handling like illegal substances they could have gotten you know like it just you can get charged for possession so just like holding it in your yeah. hand to test it um, and so you know by like those acts of civil disobedience they've shown like no they these drugs need to be tested and again the folks um in vancouver like giving you know tested safe um with like known components drugs for free it's like yeah um stepping outside of what you're being told is possible has this major impact because we are starting to see some movement on that i don't think enough but um you know well yeah and it's i mean we're not seeing enough because that kind of thing needs a large amount of like ongoing sustained force behind it right and uh -huh. i i was talking to um I'm, I'm going to be a speaker at the UVic Students with Disabilities Sexpo that's coming up um, nice. and may air around the same time as this show. Um, and, you know, we're talking about how, like, you know, for us to see changes both in terms of, like, structures that provide support, but also just, like, community attitudes and like general like you know how much sexual currency do disabled people have like that changes like n it can't change solely with the pressure from people who are personally impacted by it right because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the people who are the people who are suffering the most um, you know, as we've already talked about, like we don't have lots and lots of resources to be applying sustained ongoing like direct pressure to change the things that we're living on. Like we really do require um, solidarity and like allyship from yeah. people who are not personally impacted, right? Like attitudes about disability and access, like, for those to change, people who are not yet disabled have to start giving a fuck, right? Yeah. And I think that a part of that is like recognizing, you know, you know people recognizing that like being able-bodied is temporary, like in general, right? Yeah. Like if yeah. you survive, Full stop. if you survive your youth, 
and you have been able-bodied like it's coming like you're you're either going to die or become disabled like I, it well i would posit that also everyone has been in a body that's essentially disabled when they were babies too right like mm-hmm. um i've thought about that quite a bit in caring for my babies and toddlers and stuff and it's like what is the difference between a baby and somebody with like you know an adult or an older child with um you know the limitations that a baby has on their mobility on their brain function all those things but we look at it differently because they're growing and it's interesting because it plays into what i've experienced with the stigma around my disability and the pressure to silver lining or toxic positivity and people being like but you're getting better um and i like i know a lot of disabled people that's such a sticking point with the stigma that we face is this like we're not getting better we're we're not growing we're not changing but i would say that babies you you know you've basically had the experience of being in a disabled body like if you ever I'm, i'm sure you have watched a tiny baby try to grab something and they're like like focusing their mind and they're like trying to grab something and i'm like how is that not a disabled temporarily disabled body Mm -hmm. like your brain is not controlling your limbs you're not doing the thing that you want to do and and interestingly humans are unique in how um how uh, like our infants are born and how little contr- like motor skills they have and how little um, you know ability to to care for their own bodies they have right like it's it, it's wild they need so much care and and really like what is the difference between caring for a baby and caring for a disabled adult and you know the the big difference is this like well they're growing and it's changing and we can assume that for most babies they will eventually be able to like grab the thing and like put the food in their own mouth and then they're like putting their own pants on and they're talking and they're you know um learning how to not just like jump off of high things or like touch hot things or get bit by dogs but like essentially really what i I would say is like even for your human being who is like gets born grows up and then like gets hit by a truck and they've never been disabled and they're like immediately dead you're like okay that's a person whose life did not include disability like most people who get to go through the experience of being elderly do because you know most of us do end up disabled right but like even that person experienced being a tiny baby who was like i can't walk please carry me yeah and you know like having things like a like a universally accessible design to you know when when my daughter was like almost two just before i would have had to pay for a flight uh, a seat on a flight we took a week in toronto and i had never really thought about or realized like how inaccessible their subway system is right uh-huh. like there are very in there in montreal yeah oh, there yeah. are very <laughs> few subway stations that have an elevator and you know yep. here i was with uh not quite two-year-old and a stroller and was like okay well i guess you know 
to get around like i'm i'm going to like strap her in and like hope for the best you know and like being able to do that first of all like that i mean that's not that's not a level of ability that i've always had um you know i lost a lot of my mobility in my early 20s and sort of like it came back um but i i am aware that that is like a precarious thing and yeah if you have something that is accessible to someone in a wheelchair guess what it's also accessible to a parent with a kid in a stroller and you know like i've heard that from so many folks because i live in like i live in saanich so we have very little sidewalk coverage and very poor um, pedestrian infrastructure which is extremely hard on people who use mobility devices and I have actually heard it from many other parents that that they don't clue in to that until they have a kid and are trying to get around in a stroller and they're like I just can't like this is terrifying and so like you can't just like jump off the road onto the muddy boulevard where there's no sidewalk when someone's speeding down the street and they're vehicle right yeah um and i like i've been at communities community association meetings where people are like you know bringing forward this idea like i experienced this for the first time and like my mind was totally blown after i started using a stroller and like how do people do this and and so yeah like i do really expand on that um that connection between disability and infancy and childhood and it's you know it's it's it connects back to like care labor and how we value that and how we integrate that um and mobility um there's so many aspects right that are like there's a a shared experience even though you know some of the people who are requiring care are very small and some are you know full grown there's still um so much of of the experience that's similar yeah and i mean i i feel like an important piece for me on that is that like when we ask the question of like what is the difference um culturally speaking our society is very okay with infant like infantilization of anyone who needs care um mm-hmm. and you know we aren't challenged as much i don't think as many people are are challenged as much as in thinking about babies and children as like autonomous beings Mm -hmm. who should be like engaged in consent process and given dignity Mm -hmm. um and so because that is sort of like the standard in terms of how people relate to children um then that's also translated and and put onto anyone else who needs care right um Mm -hmm. and so therein we we have a big problem right because like you know as a disabled adult if someone was going to talk down to you as if like you don't have agency like fuck off right like that's um, but yeah you make such a good point of connecting that back to the oppression of children and and the um you know that that is i think so fundamental to the way that we engage with how we oppress on you know micro and macro levels um everyone who's marginalized is you know it, it, it comes back to like we fundamentally have accepted 
that it's okay to treat people who we see as less than or other or less capable than us in a certain way because we accept that vis-a-vis children. Yeah. And it's absolutely unacceptable. And again, like I could, uh, yeah, I, I feel like you and I could probably do a whole other episode on like the oppression of children and like child liberation, but like, who, um, <clears throat> you know, like how many uh, folks who use mobility devices and particularly wheelchairs um, are often being just like moved without people even asking consent. Yeah, like don't touch someone else's mobility Whereas device, if somebody, like... if I'm standing and somebody bodily tries to like take my shoulders and like push me down an aisle, that's like such a no-no. But as soon as you have this like visible and, and you know, and how often do I see people trying to interact with my children on that same level where it's just that, or, or and frankly, how often do I catch that arising in myself where I'm like, whoa, why did I just pick up this kid without asking if I could pick them up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like I'm constantly in the process of catching myself on my um, like oppressive internalized structure, to, like a way of thinking about and interacting with my own children and the other children that um, I ha- I'm in relationship with. Right. Yeah. And you know as I catch that I'm also like oh and there's the ableism oh and there's you know um all these other isms packed into like how I'm treating children and and you know I, I feel like that is still a very niche thing to even talk about yeah yeah and I'm I don't know I mean I maybe we maybe we should come back and do another episode focused <laughs> just on that because there is this sort of idea I saw someone made a TikTok about recently that was said something of like, you know, if we gathered children around like on mass and told them what was going on, um, there would be no like everything would be over because they wouldn't stand for it. Right. Like so yeah. much of how our society operates relies on children being kept in the dark. Um, and, and being, you know, treated as subhumans, essentially, right? And, um, and yeah, then we'd go about, like, replicating The other thing there, in terms of, like, the way that we treat children, um, upholding things that probably actually need to be allowed to collapse, um, is... If you think about it, if you come like, circle back to kind of where we started this conversation and um, having to push through to our breaking point and everyone's just kind of doing that and no one's really naming it and um, how much that costs children mm-hmm. and obviously other people who require care. But with children being a large group of, of like a large demographic in um, society that requires care. Um you know, I think back to my kids are homeschooled now, but I think about when my eldest um, was in like full time daycare and I was like gunning to finish a degree and like working and, you know, trying to be like the career person that I thought I wanted to be at the time slash it was expected of me and I need money. Yeah. So that's, a, you know, wasn't necessarily like a desire arising from me. Um but yeah I used to like yell at my child almost every day because I would be so stressed about getting us out the door on time and being on time for work 
and um you know like I as a parent I have done a lot of work on my guilt around some of my early parenting um and done a lot of work on like repair with that child but that is literally the norm like it's like normalized mm-hmm. to be like so stressed out that we're being irritable and like not kind to our children and where you know we don't have time to be like you don't want to wear those socks let's go find some socks that you do want to wear it's going to take you 15 minutes to choose the socks or like half an hour let's do that like wh- and Instead, like, of course, like we don't have time i don't care for a thing containers a thing yeah no like how many times have i literally just like yelled at my kid and he's like feeling anxious about something about like getting out the door to go to daycare or whatever right and like i'm responding by just being like no i'm not taking this on i can't take like you are stressing me out i'm yelling at you now and like you know not not to overstate that but like i literally where there was like a phase where i was like super go 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 and like trying to have this big career and like finish a degree and whatever it where i was like not a good parent I was oppressing my child and I was it was so normalized um that I didn't see that it was a fundamental issue with how I was structuring my life and you know so this this idea that capitalism is like just and this you know stage of capitalism is just squeezing every last drop out of us well you know who is paying the biggest cost it's the people who require care and have you know Di- non-standard needs right like mm-hmm. I, I i can't be like hey kid i know you don't like that food just eat it like that that's not it's not okay they have different taste buds they have different experiences of eating i need to feel that i have time to be like let's make sure you have food that you feel good about eating yeah or you know you, you don't want to leave wherever this is not going to get to a point where i'm just like dragging you out yeah against your like you're expressly not giving me consent and I'm just dragging you out like that but that is that's the schedule that I was on and that's the schedule that I would say the majority of the parents that I know are on and it's a schedule that's set by capitalism it's a schedule that's set by um manufactured scarcity and it's the children that are paying and it's and 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 the oppression of our children and the other folks that we um have care responsibilities towards they're paying for it yeah and like i'm currently paying for it right like it's all coming in full circle i'm like oh yeah i'm paying for it i'm not getting my needs met i'm not being cared for in the way that i need to be because the people in my life are too busy because of manufactured scarcity Mm -hmm. and you know i i see our time where i'm like okay yeah we've been at this for a long time i I want to add one more piece that sort of ties in to the the big picture history thing, right? Of like, okay, yeah, maybe love it. it. Maybe it's helpful for us. Binging like, all these history podcasts isn't for nothing. Yeah, like <laughs> let's look outside of this current context because obviously, like, if the solution was available and like in front of us in the current context, like we would do it, right? And it's yeah. so maybe maybe we need to look somewhere else. Um, but I think that one of the one of the things that I like to sort of like see in in that sense of like how do we keep doing this is like there's something about this that feels so wrong um and do do you know the story of Shanadar one no um okay so Shanadar one it was a um Neanderthal 
who lived into old age for a Neanderthal, which I think is like, I don't know, maybe 35 or 40 or something. Um, but when they looked at uh, like the skeletal remains and whatever, they saw that like there was evidence that he had disabilities from childhood. Like uh-huh. things that could have potentially meant that he was blind, hearing impaired, maybe had like one shorter leg or something. Like his body was like quite obviously different in a way that like his function is like operation would have been different. Um, and he lived into old age. Yeah. And, you know, when Margaret Mead is asked, like, you know, what's the first sign of human civilization? Like, it's not a field. It's not a tool. It's like it's a healed femur. Right. That is that is when we start to yeah. see humans being humans, because like at our very core, the most like who are we as a species thing is that we care for each other. And, and, you know, like, the way that our infants are born so, like, tiny and helpless is a part of mm-hmm. that. But also in terms of, like, how we have organized collectively, operating in such a way that we take care of each other is, like, that is what makes us human. So yep. living in a society that is operating in pretty much exactly the opposite way, like, of course it feels wrong. Because it's like, yeah. it, our society has lost its humanity. Yep. 100%. Whew. I mean, in something that has struck me, which I think would show that, you know, this this has been a through line for probably more time than it hasn't in, in our history, is this... Um, I recently, I've been teaching my, my older child um, about, like, local history... Um, which is has been super interesting and was learning about the leper colony on Darcy Island. Okay. Um, and then, and how, you know, there was a lot of intersections there with like ableism and stigma of leprosy and also racism. Um, but basically the city of Victoria banished originally five um, Chinese men who had leprosy to Darcy Island and then would just like, drop supplies off once every three months but they didn't get any treatment and during the same era there was a a lazaretto so like a leper hospital on the east coast for white people where they were actually getting treatment and there was no treatment to like reverse the disease but there there was a lot that could be done to alleviate the suffering right and so these the chinese folks were not getting that um and so you know we were learning about that kind of shameful horrible uh episode in victoria history um and then i was learning about leprosy throughout the middle ages and how um and it actually comes back to like that era of christianity too because because jesus had cured lepers during lepers was seen as like a saintly thing to do and so the lazaretos were actually like some of the most wonderful well-funded um hospitals right so like with hospital really being you know, hospitality and care for sick people, right? So, um, <clears throat> you know, we have this idea of like, oh, the Middle Ages, and you're like lepers just dying in the street with their noses falling off. 
no, that was a lot more recent. Like <laughs> for most of the Middle Ages, lepers were being cared for in, uh, you know, quite a bit better circumstances than more recently. And and then the other thing is, um, you know, archaeology also shows that, you know, disabled people were being cared for, and you know, sp- particularly people with um, physical limitations being cared for very well and living long lives in that era as well um and you know so it's like what are we what are what are we doing right now and and what is that doing to our um well-being but you know we've just so fundamentally allowed this idea that our worth as a human is tied into our earning potential um and so you know we've we've internalized that towards ourselves and towards others and it's this you know the individualist project reaching its absolutely terrifying end game too right where like you know oh sucks to be you you're disabled well i'm okay so i'll you know i'll yeah. do my thing and yeah. <laughs> you do yours <laughs> right and it's too bad there's no funding <laughs> we won't even do it on that level but like yeah, as you say, it is, it's fundamentally what makes us human and what, what makes us uh, people. And so, um, you know, we, <clears throat> um, we can imagine different because we've done different, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's some magical, um, you know, like Rousseauian picture of the past or there's some mythical thing we can go back to. It's, it's certainly there's a lot more nuance there, right? But like we we can flex our imaginations more than we really have uh, allowed ourselves to believe. Absolutely. Um, thank you for, for coming and flexing your imagination and ranting with me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I... I need to go and access some of that uh, extraordinary public health care we have in this country. Um, (laughs) Uh, Yes, I'm sure there's more of a story there, but yes, yes, good. Thank you so much. I, um, like, I just, I love that you were willing to take a chance on someone being like, hey, hi, um, I have a thing. I want to talk on your podcast. Yeah, it was and it's great really lovely to meet you. Totally. Um, well, yeah, let's let's do this again. I feel like we could very easily um, talk for another hundred minutes without any difficulty. Agreed. Agreed. And that was part two of my conversation with my new friend Elise. Um, so thanks again for listening, and um, you know if you. Also want to share about what you can imagine your life and our world may look like uh, if things were just a little bit different uh, and you have ideas about, you know, what that different could be and what you could do if that was unlocked uh, and you want to chat about it here with me, uh, you can send me an email, K-O-R-I-D-O-T-Y dot, uh, dot com is my website or at Gmail is my email Uh, There's lots of ways to find me, and I'm stoked about connecting with people like Elise, who listened to the show and thought, you know, I got something to say about that. So if you got something to say about that, uh, you know, keep listening, get in touch. Uh, I'm always stoked to have the conversation get even further. Thanks for listening.